The time has come, so turn up the sound. It's time for Buried Broadway. Hiya! Hello! I'm Jen Beverelli. And I'm Mikey Beverelli. And welcome to... Buried Broadway, where we discover, dissect, and demystify forgotten Broadway musicals that we most likely found on vinyl for a dollar. So, Jen. So, Mikey. How are things? Oh! We're interrupting our banter segment because, as you've probably heard on a lot of podcasts right now, we recorded this episode a while ago. So none of those things are as relevant or as important as what's happening now. We want to let you know that we support all of the protests that are happening right now and the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole. We are only starting out and our podcast doesn't have a huge platform yet, but we wanted to use what we have to support. No voice is too small. You may have noticed that we haven't been posting on Instagram so that black voices can be amplified during this pivotal time. Our stories have been focused on words of encouragement and sources to foster change. We will continue to be muted but active on social media for a little while, but we want to keep posting podcasts because those of you that are doing the work also deserve and need a little bit of a wind down. You can listen to this podcast to help you laugh for a moment, but if you're not up to that, we will still be here whenever you are. We love you. We are listening. And we are learning. Now let's dig up some laughs. Back to the podcast. If you want to get in touch, just follow this address. It's B-E-V-A-R-E-L-L-I dot com. So this week's show is Redhead. Book by Dorothy Fields, Herbert Fields, Sidney Sheldon, and David Shaw. Music by Albert Haig. Lyrics by Dorothy Fields. We kind of lose track of where we buy our records from, but I'm pretty sure we bought this at a store called Joe's Records Paradise. And Joe's Records Paradise is a store that I've been going to my entire life. I remember when I first bought CDs and realized that buying new CDs would cost a lot of money. I actually went to Joe's Records Paradise and bought many CDs uh, that were used for the same price and really formed my musical taste today. Uh, It has since moved three times, and it is now in Silver Spring, Maryland, and it is full of records um, and CDs. Redhead opened on Broadway February 5th, 1959, and closed March 19th, 1960. It had a total of 452 performances. It was held at the 46th Street Theater, which was renamed the Richard Rogers Theater in 1990. This theater has the record for housing the most Tony Award-winning Best Plays and Musicals, with a total of 11, the most recently being Hamilton. It was the first theater to institute democratic seating, which is when all the audience members go through the same entrance. They used to have separate entrances and exits for the mezzanine versus the orchestra. So Jen and I definitely saw Hamilton at the Richard Rogers Theater, but I saw one of my favorite musicals, Tarzan, there. Which I think is obscure enough for Mikey to talk about eventually. (laughs) But I don't know. You tell us. (laughs) So other shows that we're playing at the same time include Flower Drum Song. Music Man. West Side Story. Goldilocks. And My Fair Lady, which was in its 
third year. Redhead received seven Tony nominations and six wins, including Best Musical. Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical, Richard Kiley. Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Gwen Verdon. Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Leonard Stone. Best Choreography, Bob Fosse. Best Costume Design, Ruben Ter-Arutunian. It was also nominated for Best Conductor and Music Director, Jay Blackton. He didn't win this one. It actually went to Flower Drum Song that year. Redhead also won a Grammy Award for Best Broadway Show Album in 1959. Technically, it was tied with Gypsy. So it's very obvious by looking at the cover who the star in the show is. It is Gwen Verdon. She plays Essie in Redhead. She was born on January 13, 1925 in Culver City, California. Her father was an electrician for MGM Studios. Her mother was a former vaudeville dancer with the Denishon School of Dance and later became a teacher. Gwen Verdon had rickets and wore leg braces, which led to her being teased as a child. Her mother decided to put her into dance to strengthen her legs, but she still wore corrective boots until she was in high school. At 11, she was cast in the movie The King Steps Out, and her career was started, but it was brought to a screeching halt when she became pregnant at the age of 17. She and James Hennigan, a tabloid reporter, were married in 1942, but the marriage only lasted four years, and Gwen Verdon left their son, Jimmy, to be raised by her parents. To reignite her career, she joined the dance troupe of Jack Cole, and he, seeing her talent, cast her in the ensemble of the Broadway show Alive and Kicking. Then she became his assistant choreographer, where she taught stars to dance and took roles as a specialty dancer on film. She was employed consistently in the chorus of Broadway shows and eventually worked her way to stardom and won a total of four Tony Awards in her life. Her most famous roles include Lola in Damn Yankees, Roxy Hart in Chicago, and Charity Hope Valentine in Sweet Charity. She was a legendary dancer and married to Bob Fosse for 11 years. So now we're going to zoop on over to a little bit of Bob Fosse and then we'll meet back up with both of them. (laughs) (laughs) So Bob Fosse directed and choreographed Redhead. He was born on June 23rd, 1927 in Chicago, Illinois. His father was a traveling salesman. Fosse was always drawn to dance, took lessons, and performed professionally at age 13. He was recruited in the Navy at the end of World War II and was placed in the variety show. So basically, he was the parts of Danny Kaye and Bing Crosby <laughs> in White Christmas. <laughs> After the war, Fosse moved to New York to be the new Fred Astaire. Spoiler alert, it worked. He was in numerous stage shows and movies as a dancer, but what got him popular was his appearance in Kiss Me Kate, the movie, in 1953, where he performed his own choreography. This got him the attention of Broadway producers, and in 1954, he choreographed The Pajama Game on Broadway. In 1955, he choreographed Damn Yankees, starring Gwen Verdon, and Sparks Flew. (laughs) Even though he was married to his second wife, Joan McCracken... Fosse and Verdon started a love affair. In 1957, he choreographed Verdon in A New Girl in Town, which we will cover in another episode. The two became 
inseparable personally and professionally, dancing together in the film of Damn Yankees in 1958. Verdon was even offered the role in Redhead and said she wouldn't take it unless Fosse was the director and choreographer. And that's how Bob Fosse made his directorial debut on the Broadway stage with this show in 1959. Though the couple had their only child, Nicole Fosse, in 1963, which we speculated was the reason they turned down High Spirits featured in episode 5, They separated in 1971, but never formally got divorced. The two still remained friends, and Fosse cast Verdon in Chicago in 1975. Bob Fosse died in Gwen Verdon's arms in front of the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. on September 23, 1987, while the two were on their way to the opening night of Sweet Charity at the National Theater. Gwen Verdon still continued to make movies and perform on stage after his death. But she did pay tribute to her late husband through the review entitled Fosse. She passed away at the age of 75 on October 18th, 2000, at her daughter's home in Woodstock, Vermont. for the show. It sounded weirdly patriotic at times and western at times, but I know we haven't gotten to the show yet. This takes place in London, so let's see where this goes. (laughs) (laughs) Act one. We see the face of a beautiful girl seated before her dressing room table mirror, applying theatrical makeup. There is a whistling in the distance. A man with bright red hair and beard suddenly emerges and proceeds to choke her to death with a scarf as she screams. Right off the bat. It's a murder. So that wasn't Gwen Verdon. I was like, oh, Gwen Verdon is putting (laughs) makeup on. I guess not. (laughs) A few weeks later, we are at the Simpson Sisters Waxworks in London after the turn of the century. A sign reads... (laughs) A new and blood-curdling exhibit, The Strangler and the Dancing Girl. Ah! Howard Cavanaugh, a producer of entertainment at the Odeon Theater, appears. The murdered actress, Ruth LaRue, was expected to have been in his next production. The proprietors of the museum, Maud and Sarah Simpson, bemoaned the fact that the murderer didn't slit the throat of the girl, which would have made their display much more exciting. Oh my god! <laughs> George Poppet, Howard's comedian arrives and notices what a good business the Simpson sisters are doing. Inspector White from Scotland Yard has taken the case over and comes to look at the waxwork. My head hurts. From all that is going on, it appears to be quite a day at the Simpson sisters' waxworks, which leads to the first song. Yeah, it's quite an introduction. I'm confused. All the characters at once. Historic <laughs> 
Okay, I was confused when we started, <laughs> and now I think I know where we are. Mm-hmm. So it's a horror museum, Madame Tussauds style. Yes. Madame Tussauds actually started with its most popular exhibit being a chamber of horrors. Okay, I could get behind this. I would probably <laughs> go. So yeah, I think the shrunken heads and everything, that's just at their gift shop. That's just for you to enjoy. <laughs> just for you to take home a little, a little bit of the fun. I love this song. This is the type of opening number I love. All the chorus is singing. It ends in huge chords. It gets you pumped up. It's kind of dark. I, I love this. This made me so happy. Okay. I'm not as happy as you. I think this might be one of my favorite opening numbers that I've heard what? so far. Okay, I don't know about I that. I loved it. It made me. You just like everything that has to do with murder, Mikey. That's not, <laughs> that's, you're not. Yeah, but I also, like, I loved hearing the soprano lines when they're just like screeching Yeah, at this the top. is like very traditionally laid out. Yes, and I love that. That's one thing to note about me. I love full sounding chorus numbers. Yeah, but I just feel... It didn't go anywhere? I mean, I guess you're not really going anywhere. You're supposed to lay the scene or Mm -hmm. lay the feel of the show. But I'm not even sure I felt that. I mean, I guess I got more clarity on where we were, kind of. I'm assuming that funny stuff is going on (laughs) while this song is happening. Like, they're bringing in waxworks and people's heads are falling off. And they're going and, like, fetching the head and stuffing it back on the body. Or, like, they're setting up a murder scene and, like, pouring ketchup all over something. I would be very amused if that was what was going on. Well, let's see where it goes from here. As Maude and Sarah get ready for their big opening, they notice that their niece, Essie, is late once again. Maude knows that it was because her clairvoyant niece was having another one of her visions. Ooh. Essie experiences a vision of a man. There were shooting stars and fireworks before he asked her to marry him. Aww. However... Essie is 29 years old, and it appears to everyone as though she does not want to get married. Ah. She would like to, but she has no suitors. Which Hmm. leads to the next song, The Right Finger of My Left Hand. The right finger of me left hand is the lonesomest place in town. Day after day it lingers, looking at other fingers What are smoothing out a snowy veil Or patting a satin gown You'd think someone quarantined it It's a sort of a no-man's land Oh, wouldn't I swoon if some afternoon I found a small gold band on the light finger, the white finger, the right finger of me long left hand. That was a nice little ditty. It kind of made me smile. I mean, it was definitely nothing I would write home about. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're having some opposite reactions at the moment. Yeah, especially Gwen Verdon's British accent is (laughs) really horrendous. It's not bad. I mean, I know My Fair Lady was playing (laughs) just down the street, but we didn't all have to sound like Eliza Doolittle. 
It's, and a shitty a, version of it at that. Yes. It, it, it did sound like that. But, um, you know, I'm she's Gwen Verdon. <laughs> I know. I mean, seeing her dance would be the thing. I'm not sure if she's going to really sparkle as much as she would in person <laughs> on an audio format. <laughs> yeah. It's a little ditty ballad. It's a little bit like... Little lamb, little mm. lamb, I wonder how old I am. It's it's there, it's cute, it makes you go, oh, poor thing, and then you move on. So let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. The unveiling of the new wax exhibit begins. The face of the strangler is a blank, white expanse of wax. The spectators are horrified. Outside, Tom Baxter, an American strongman, is up in arms. The murdered Ruth LaRue was a member of his act and his best friend's fiance. Offended by the wax exhibit, he asks how much it would cost to buy it and break it into little pieces. <laughs> Realizing that Tom is the man of her visions, Ooh. Essie is completely smitten. When Maud tells him that the exhibit isn't for sale, he pulls the curtain in front of the exhibit. An angered Maud reopens the curtain to find that the scarf used in the display is gone. The scarf? Who gives a shit? <laughs> the scarf used to strangle. Oh. Panic breaks out as everyone assumes that the killer must be amongst them. What? <laughs> <laughs> what are they talking about? It's kind of a jump of uh, Also, logic. weren't they there for the whole conversation? <laughs> in the course of the pandemonium... Tom cuts his hand with a sword that Essie hands to him. What? I, I don't know. <laughs> the lights go out as more chaos ensues. Essie is removed from it all as she daydreams about Tom. Inspector White finds a door leading outside from Essie's workroom. What? He presumes that the strangler has escaped. What are they talking about? <laughs> As Essie bandages Tom's hand, she learns about his ultimate woman. Most Ultimate of... woman? Yes. The ultimate woman. Most of the qualities are those Essie does not possess. Aww. Most importantly, Tom wants a redhead. She is a brunette. Aw, man. Story of my life. <laughs> Tom readies to leave with George as Essie bursts into a loud cry. She tells Tom and George a fictional life story full of woe. She was born in a trunk. Both of her parents are long deceased, and she was raised by her two abusive aunts. Tom tells Essie that she has to find a man who can protect her. Essie, <laughs> Essie innocently responds that she has never thought of that as being one of her options. Oh my god, because she's so stupid. <laughs> Which leads to the next song. Just for once. If you're smart, do something foolish just for once. If you're strong, then gently fall apart. If you're cold, be warm and sultry just for once. If you think, you'll stop before you start. If you're tempted to kiss a man, then kiss him. And feel reckless and giddy with delight. When you don't want to kiss him, just dismiss him. <sighs> what can you lose? You'll experience an interesting night if you're smart. I like these boys. 
I was about to say, it sounds great. Yeah, I really like their voices. I like mm-hmm. their voices together, too, because they're just different enough mm-hmm. that you can tell who is who. I'm guessing the not super robust one is Leonard Stone. I believe it is. His voice isn't so charactery that you lose the like classic timbre of his mm-hmm. voice, but it's distinct enough from Richard Kiley that I just find it really enjoyable. Yeah. And, you know, I do like Gwen Verdon's voice being thrown into the mix as a nice um, juxtaposition. I like her. I really do. But right now, her character is bumming me out. I really don't like weak women, you guys. I don't like it. I know that that's what most classic Broadway is focused on, but I'm not here for it. Well, we'll see where she goes from here. The cover makes it seem like she's going to, like, pull a Sandy. Yeah. But also, Sandy wasn't really that great of a feminist icon either. (laughs) Maybe a different person. (laughs) (laughs) After whirling around with Tom. See, I would have liked to have seen the whirling around. I bet that was nice. (laughs) He and George depart. And Essie realizes that she is even more smitten with him. And she sings Merely Marvelous. I feel merely marvelous. Wilder than the sea I look nearly beautiful I don't look like me It's a blooming miracle What a smack can do I could fly, I could soar I could cry, I could roar Make it real, make him feel I mean, it's nice. These songs are really short. You're right. Well, I like this song better than her first solo because she seemed to have completely lost her accent besides saying (laughs) bloomin' one time. You're completely correct. So I enjoyed it a lot. (laughs) Maybe during the course of this, the more uh, in love with the American she gets the less she speaks like or maybe when she gets red hair she just loses it well she has she doesn't have red hair yet oh maybe well. she's just thinking about having red hair <laughs> essie fears that she'll never see tom again she devises a plan essie with the help of aunt sarah decides to stage an attempted murder scenario to make it look like the strangler has attempted to kill her genius idea <laughs> they both scream and maud rushes in what? Wait, this already happened? <laughs> They're like, we're going to do this thing. Look, we did it. Ah! <laughs> I guess so. They didn't really plan that scheme for very long before going through with it. I thought this was going to be like the end of act one. No. Okay, go for it. Maud buys the story and stops Essie from leaving until she is safely disguised as a man. Essie wants to go and tell Tom, but Maud insists to take her right to Scotland Yard. On their way... Essie and Sarah trick Maud into going to the Odeon Theater, where George is rehearsing a new number with a chorus, the kind of number that we would find in America called the Uncle Sam Rag. This new dance is actually immense. Get off your seats, up on your toes, and I'll show you how it goes. Wow! First you knock me, shake your shoulder, clap and shout hot dog. And pass the mustard baby. Next you must roll like a boulder, snap and cry wham. Bam, 
the overture we thought it was but i wish i could have seen this song again i feel like this song is going to be one that has a lot of fossey choreography that we're missing out on by Mm. just listening to it he really likes to play with dynamics i think that it probably went with physicality that he was doing in his choreography you can definitely see his mark that he made as a director that made its way through the recorded medium. Essie reveals herself to Tom and tells him the story. She also tells Tom that she knows what the Strangler's face looks like and can make a wax replica. Why is she lying? (laughs) Aunt Sarah agrees and says that Essie could make a wax head of the Strangler. Essie protests, but it's too late. Wait, she was the one that had the idea. I don't understand. Right? (laughs) Yeah, she did. What the hell? Girl, if you don't want to do it, don't put it out there. (laughs) Essie's wax face could help solve the murder. Tom tries to send Essie back to the wax works, but she objects, telling him that she is a marked woman and needs protection. She needs a place to stay. Which leads to the next song, Irby Fitch's Twitch. Who's that? I don't know. There's no character with that name. Is that just like a fictional person? Let's see. Hello. A bit of a twitch for a witch. All met in Ipswich. But the hitch is the Ipswich witch, which once I wed. If I should unhitch the witch which I wed And switch to the witch what give me the twitch, the witch which I ditch will pitch a rock at me head. What a petunia. Though I can't lose the itch, the itch for that witch in Ipswich. The witch which I wed is richer than the witch to which I'm led. Now look, Herbie Fitch, I don't own a stitch. Don't switch to the witch what give you the twitch. Which witch is not rich is the witch you wed instead. Crawl into your niche and take Mrs. Fitch to bed. Well, that sounds more like... Gwen Verdon. Still with a British accent. What are you talking about? The British accent's back and it's worse than ever. <laughs> it just sounds like it's a solo dance number where she's she's doing a little ditty. I'm not sure if it sounds classically Gwen Verdon or not. I usually think of her as being sexy. Oh, true. But this is really playful and really hard to sing. Yeah. <laughs> like, ugh. It definitely seems like the most difficult song so far And we're not even looking at the dance routine that's attached to it. It probably went with something crazy. Mm -hmm. I would assume between the two of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after performing the song, Tom suggests that they can use her in the finale. Well, yeah, because she actually can dance and sing and do stuff. While Essie is undergoing her transformation, Sir Charles Willingham, the fiancé to departed Ruth LaRue, stops by the theater to pick up some of Ruth's things. 
he admits to having overheard the entire plan and would like to meet with Essie. Tom tells him that it might be too much for her to handle today. Charles agrees to wait, but asks Tom not to tell Essie of his desire to question her. George comes back, having been thrown out of the dressing room by the aunts the second that Essie took off her shoes. George and Tom... Because those are sexual. (laughs) George and Tom ponder the situation, but George is thunderstruck by a thought. Tom is sweet on Essie, and although he tries to hide his true feelings, it's pretty obvious just how he feels. That leads to the song, She's Not Enough Woman for Me. They were bowed. They were not. Could she hate enough? I bet she foams at the mouth. Or love enough? Love enough? Are you kidding? She'd love some guy over and above enough. You could do a lot worse. But I'm not interested. She's temperate and respectable. Not interested. She's just, just not enough woman for me. Such a little girl. Remember Jessica, 18 hands high, we called her the Trojan Horse. A narrow girl. Girl, she could have written the history of the English Ivy across her back. A kind of pathetic little sparrow girl. Jackie the bomb, mouth like a barracuda, teeth like a bud Sure, she's smart enough. I was stranded in Australia. My wife went back to her husband and hands I went back. hard enough. That cowgirl in America wrote me right across the Hotel Astor lobby. Will you shut up? You were sighing? She's just... Just not enough woman for me. So I like their two voices again, but I'm not sure about this song. What? I really really like this song. (laughs) (laughs) Today we are not on an agreeing day. Not at all. I mean, I kind of liked that part where George has to say a ass ton of words in between each (laughs) of Tom's phrases and I couldn't understand a single word he said. It's like, hey, uh, hey, can you say all of these words as like three sentences in between each phrase? Okay, yeah, I can do that. And then they just like, oh, that's really funny. Keep doing it. I just love that he tells him to shut up. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I think their dynamic is so cute as characters. (laughs) I think it's funny. (laughs) I think I really like George. Well... A few hours later, Tom waits for Essie outside her dressing room. Creepy. Essie finally emerges, and Tom is bowled over with her newfound beauty. I'm rolling my eyes again. (laughs) Tom asks Essie to dinner, and she accepts. Wait, are we not going to talk about what's changed about her physical (laughs) appearance at all? We have no idea. Okay, cool. Left alone with her aunts, Essie worries. Wait, wait, wait. I thought they went out to dinner. Well, he asked her to dinner. Oh, later. Yeah. So then she went back in to mm-hmm. the room. What time is it? It was a few, This is a few hours later. Like, What did she do? Did she dye her hair? I think she did. That's the only think- thing that could possibly take a few hours. <laughs> Left alone with her aunts, Essie worries. She's never been on a date with a man before, and she might spoil everything. Essie admits to Maude that she made up the story about being beaten just to get his sympathy. Maude and Sarah offer her a bit of advice in dealing with the opposite sex. Wait, Maude's not mad? (laughs) Maude's like, of course you did, dear. We all do stupid things to get with men. Well, the advice that they gave her is sung because it's in the next song, Behave Yourself. The night is full of stars. He's full of beans. He calls a handsome cab. You know what that means. You can't be too aloof. You can't be bold. 
Don't fight him. Be brave. Be funny. Be great. Be happy. Be paid. <laughs> you talk of romance. Don't utter such rot. Don't ask if he's rich. Find out what he's got. Be middle class, Essie. Be proud as a queen. He might act like a king. Or a knave. A lot of woe you'll save yourself if, if you will just, just behave, behave yourself. Behave myself. Behave, behave yourself. yourself. Whatever he does, behave. Behave myself. Behave yourself. Whatever I do. Essie, I would be very confused at this point. <laughs> this song kind of sounds like, I don't understand, I'm sensitive and I don't understand the plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From Gentleman's Guy. Well, out on her date, Essie has a terrible time trying to figure out just what makes the most sense. Yeah, well, that's because her aunts freaking confused her. <laughs> Finally, she relaxes and becomes herself. With what accent, pray tell? <laughs> Back at Tom's apartment. Wait, we uh, don't get to go on the date? No. <laughs> okay. Back at Tom's apartment, Maud and Sarah are asleep on the couch waiting for Essie's return. Wait, why are they in his apartment? I have no clue. Essie arrives and feels responsible for a potential romantic failure. Suddenly, <laughs> Tom storms in and proclaims his love for Essie. What? <laughs> He sings a song, Look Who's in Love. Well, weren't we? You look as tipsy as I. Hear me say, hey, people, how blessed can I be? Look who's in love with me. Look who's in love We are well, aren't we? Look who's half happy and high Will you look who's in our arms? No one but us Who is tugging at my heart? Who is? You is who So despite the funny title, I kind of like it. I don't know. I... I don't know what's wrong with me today it, that song has all the puzzle pieces that usually work on me like mm-hmm. it's a nice guy singing a nice love song with a nice melody with a nice voice and it's just not doing it i don't know why i think it's just because it happened so fast i think you're completely correct it's weird that 20 minutes ago he was like, ah, oh, she doesn't have red hair. Go away. But then, does she have red hair now? We still don't know. I believe she has red hair now. Right. So now she's changed her physical appearance for this guy. And he's like, I love you. <laughs> like, little. Well, I, I don't know why this song is making me smile. Maybe I'm just in well, a good mood. because it's a nice melody. He has a really nice voice. Mm-hmm. And if you take the song out of the context, I think I would like it. But even still, it has passive language that I don't enjoy. Just it's the, like, the title we're itself. in love, weren't we? Aren't we? I don't know. <laughs> Checking in. Just, I don't, mm? It's not very definitive mm. on feelings. And especially when it comes to feelings of love and declaring your feelings of love to someone, I think you need to be very definitive. True. Well, the next sentence is very definitive because... They, they get can- married. <laughs> no, no. Not yet. I mean, maybe. I don't even know. They kiss passionately. Oh, yeah, they love each other, but they haven't kissed yet. No. Ew, but her aunts are there. Yeah. Are they still asleep, though? I don't know. They, eh. they must be deep sleepers. 
after that song. Didn't he bust in the door too? Like, <laughs> didn't did. it say he like did. he storms in? Yeah, he storms he in, proclaims his love. With and Maude is like. <laughs> <laughs> after Tom leaves, George comes in with all of the materials that they need to create the head. Wait, what time is it? <laughs> I don't know. And aren't they in his house? Is his house at the theater? Maybe. Oh, I think it's like an apartment, like a room. In he, a like theater. attached to like actor housing in a oh, theater. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. I think that must be what it is because <laughs> otherwise what's happening? Also, but seriously, what time is it? Because if they went on a dinner date, they'd just come back. The aunts are asleep. And George is like, you know what we need? Arts and crafts at 3 a.m. Like, what? George, go home. You need sleep. Sarah and Maude awaken Uh as Essie admits to George that she faked the strangling to get close to Tom. Essie, stop telling people that. It's embarrassing. (laughs) George tells Essie that it's too bad that she's not actually clairvoyant so that she could see the face and solve the murder. Essie responds excitedly that she actually is, and then she has a vision. Oh, how convenient. (laughs) Sir Charles, complete with red hair and beard. Immediately, she begins her work on the wax head, deciding that the first one who will be able to see the head will be Tom. On the facade of the wax museum, there are portraits of Maud, Sarah, and Essie. Tom skips about, pointing to the picture of his girl, Essie. The people outside are quite confused because in the picture Essie's hair is jet black however wait wait before (laughs) they said she was a brunette yes I don't know okay however the transform Essie is now a redhead which apparently happened and no one talked about it (laughs) earlier but okay standing in the rain Tom thinks about his lovely girl ooh and it looks like he sings a reprise of that song. The name has changed. My girl is just enough woman for me. My girl's everything I hoped to find. Too good for an ordinary dope to find. She's so fair and square. But here and there, my girl is just enough woman. My girl is just enough woman for me. My girl is just enough woman for me. The feminist in me is hating this song. <laughs> But the lyricist in me is cackling with delight. I laughed out loud at least four times (laughs) during this song. Is this meant to be funny? I don't know. (laughs) But when you say things like her posterior, superior. (laughs) Is it bad if I say that's my favorite rhyme of the show? (laughs) No, go ahead. Because mine might be... My girl's wonderful, unbeatable. When I introduce her, she's so... Meetable. <laughs> like, really? Also, I like how that pause is there, too, because it's almost indicating, like, is this a good rhyme? I'm just going to say it anyway. <laughs> it's like he's making it up on the spot, singing from his heart. 
Well, I definitely do get that feeling, though. I mean, <laughs> I guess, but he's also being rude during this song. Maybe that's just his He character. calls her odd. <laughs> he does call her odd. She was odd when she didn't have red hair. Okay, all of our animals are freaking out right now. <laughs> we are currently living in a zoo. So there was whistling in the last song, hence why our bird is very, very <laughs> interested right now. That's right. Another thing that I thought this was funny about this song. Oh my song God, Kiwi. <laughs> the thing I thought was funny about this song is that the chorus just whistles and hums. <laughs> okay, got a little crazy there. Everyone was meowing and singing. So sorry about that. Hopefully everyone will be a little quieter now. Let's continue. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the stage of the Odeon Theater, a petrified Essie is preparing to perform the finale for the first time. She closes her eyes and has a vision where she imagines herself a star dancer of extraordinary ability. And that goes right into the next song, Essie's Vision. I mean, I know they want her to dance, <laughs> but really, this is such a cop <laughs> much to say about this because it's an orchestral piece but i'm sure it looked great on stage yeah during the finale she becomes lost and misdirected even worse she looks up to find sir charles the strangler seated in the audience ah! and that leads to the next song two faces in the dark Sopranos, how are you doing today? <laughs> the main thing I want to note about that song is that ridiculous lyric. The sky is as blue as a Concord grape. <laughs> Which I think are purple. I, I think they are famously purple. But it also makes me think of the sky is blue. And all <laughs> also, I had to look this up. A Concord grape is, it's an American grape. It's a very American grape. And I don't think that they would bring an American grape over to London uh, in like the late 1800s. I don't know, man. They had to bring food on the boat. That's true. But I don't think grapes would keep. No. 
So yeah, uh, I mean, as much as I like that, um, I like the chorus in the song. I thought this was going to be more mysterious. The only mysterious part is the Sopranos. <laughs> They're like ominously ooing and aahing way up there. But what else is going on in this song? I don't know. No. They're like, there are two faces. And you're like, okay, <laughs> cool. And also, this song sounds different than like everything else. It's very weird. Not impressed. Mm. Continue. The finale is in shambles. Essie tells Tom that it was Sir Charles, but he doubts her claims. It eventually surfaces that Essie was never attacked and that she has lied to Tom for well, quite some time. What do you mean eventually? Time. Doesn't someone, someone had to have spilled the beans. Yeah. Before Tom can hear any more, he storms out. Essie is left alone. Suddenly, Sir Charles appears and greets her. Hiya, toots. <laughs> Wait, no, he's British. All your tits. <laughs> but that ends act one. That's it? Yeah. He just goes up behind her and greets her. Yes. And then the curtain yeah. comes down. I see, I, in my head, I just see the curtain like falling and he just goes, hello. And then the curtain just like goes down and you're like, what? Like that. Well, luckily, we don't have to take an intermission unless you guys need to. You can press pause, go pee, come back, get a drink. I don't know. Do whatever you want or keep going. Let's go. All right. Act two. Later... He finishes his sentence. <laughs> Act two. Later that night, Tom prepares for a girl to arrive at his apartment. Oh. What? Tom, I always didn't like you. When there is a knock at the door, Tom is disappointed to find that it is only George. Oh, who, but I like George. Hmm, who reports that someone at the theater told him that Essie left with a man who has red hair and a red beard. Wait a minute. Tom is waiting for a girl. It's been like 15 <laughs> minutes. Not very long. What happened? <laughs> Tom was like, it's over. You, backup dancer who's singing soprano lines, come over here. Like, that was zero turnaround. Completely zero. Tom, you're an asshole. Tom refuses to believe that his friend could ever be a killer. George wants Tom to join him in rescuing Essie, but Tom refuses. George then leaves while Tom waits for his date to arrive. He sings the song, I'm back in circulation. What are you, a penny? <laughs> my spots, I'm gonna hang two dolls on my own. Circulation, and I'm absolutely soaked in charm to think I nearly got hooked, nearly got burned. I glowed like a crazy glowworm, but the worm, like they say, has turned into a lion. Gonna take it slow, I'm gonna shop around. My girl will be too sorry, too late. A song called I'm Back in Circulation, which is funny enough, it did not disappoint in how funny it was. <laughs> and again, I'm not sure if it's meant to be funny, but it was hilarious. <laughs> well, what is that analogy? I don't know. I glow like a crazy glowworm, which I don't know how old you guys are, but when I was a baby, I had a glowworm. It was a little stuffed animal. 
And that's what I'm thinking of. Oh, that? They, I know exactly <laughs> like, what you're talking about. Those little glowworm toys. Those are fun. I loved the, mine. <laughs> so I'm thinking of that. And then he's like, and as they say, glowworms turn into lions. But like who that. says that? Is that a famous <laughs> phrase know. that I don't know? Because I've never heard that in my life. Glowworms are the larva stage of lions, apparently. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's good, though. It sounds good. I mean, his voice is really nice, yes. and the music of this is very nice. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was meant to be funny. I hope so, because... <laughs> well, when Tom's date finally arrives... Who is it? He can't be comfortable around her. Well, his crazy glowworm just isn't glowing. <laughs> it is obvious that Tom is still smitten with Essie. Yeah, because it's been about 15 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Literally. On the street... Sir Charles tries to talk to Essie, but believing she is in trouble, Essie sees two streetwalkers and offers to buy them both drinks. That's a, a method. Mm-hmm. Girl power. Soon, Essie and the two girls, named May and Tilly, guzzle their drinks inside a bar called the Green Dragon. Ooh! Essie confesses that she has never had alcohol before. What? She's 29. <laughs> in London in the late 1800s where I think they had to drink alcohol because the water was... I think you're thinking of like the Renaissance, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Pretty soon, she is rambling on about all that has happened, becoming more and more intoxicated. Well, that's what happened. <laughs> the crowd is quite saddened by her story, but May and Tilly decide to cheer her and everyone else up with a little song and dance, which leads to the next song... We loves ya, Jimey. Corblimey, here comes Jimey. Jimes his billy pop on his head. A witty bitty tiddly with his nose and rosy red. We loves ya, Jimey. Goody-limey. And the pants is falling down. A chap what's got a skin full is no oddity air about. But blimey, when it's Jimey, every lip and limey shouts. We loves ya, Jimey. Yes, limey-limey. You're the nicest. You're the butterfly's boots, you're the elephant's ears, you're the hummingbird's toes, you're the crocodile's tears, you're a thoroughbred rat, you're a bony fied soap, but a sweet, sloppy, bleary eyed bloke. This song sounds more American than all of them, <laughs> and it's supposed to be the most working class British pub. Yeah. And it sounds like they're singing, It's a long way to Tipperary. <laughs> like, it's very brassy to me. And I don't know. But yeah, the titles too. Th this is supposed to be the most British. We loves you, Jamie. Also, I think that Dorothy Fields, when they were like, this is going to take place in London. She was like, I'm going to sit in the back row of My Fair Lady one million times <laughs> and watch it to see what British people sound like. Because she uses the term bloomin' so much. She's like, these are working class British people. It's bloomin' ridiculous. <laughs> when I think bloomin', I think a bloomin' onion. Mm. <laughs> Essie then tries to induce a few men to dance with her. She finally grabs a man who is partially hidden behind a post. He ends up being... Sir Charles! Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> In a state of panic, Essie starts a fight. The police are summoned, and they take Essie off to jail. In the jail cell the following evening, Essie tries very hard to make sure she can stay. Maud and Sarah visit and tell Essie that they want to get her free. 
George also comes by and tells her the only way for her to get Tom back is to prove that Sir Charles is the murderer. She can do this by going back to the waxworks and putting the sculpted head on the wax exhibit. No, she can't because then she's just making a thing into what she believes. <laughs> You're right. Like, she the... created the wax head. That's not proof of anything. <laughs> she just created a piece of art to frame a man. Yeah, How is that could... solid proof? She then telephones Sir Charles and tells him to meet her at midnight so that she can show him the exhibit. When he sees his own face up there on the exhibit, he'll try to kill her, but George will get Tom to wait with him in the next room and rescue her. Oh... Once Tom sees how wrong he has been, he'll forgive her completely. Essie gets the rest of the girls in the cell to assist her in distracting the guards so Wait. she can get the cell keys. Okay, so she's still in jail. <laughs> she's still in jail. <laughs> but this leads to the next song, The Pickpocket Tango. <laughs> Piece. This show, because it's a Fosse show, has a lot more dance numbers than a average musicale. True. And I, I feel like this song would be interesting if we could see what it looked like. Exactly. I feel like this is probably a highlight dance number. All of the women end up escaping. Yay! Elsewhere, Tom and George are talking. Tom still refuses to help Essie. Howard is concerned that she may come back and destroy his show, which leads to a song we actually don't have, which is a Look Who's in Love reprise. Tom finally realizes that he does still love Essie and rushes off with George to help. George tells Tom to go see Essie and make sure that she has called Sir Charles and that he'll be at the waxworks at midnight. In the meantime, George will go to see Inspector White. Later... Essie is putting the finishing touches on the exhibit. Tom enters and lovingly taps her on the shoulder. How do you lovingly tap someone? <laughs> doot, doot, doot. They make up. That was quick. Yep. <laughs> She's an idiot. <laughs> Soon, they are both gushing over with unbridled love and passion, which is this next song, I'll Try. I'll Try to Satisfy. Have a pyramid to recline on. You should have a platinum opera hat. Carpet made of armor to spill your wine on. <laughs> you should have a tennis court in your flat. For punting on the Thames, the Aquitania should be yours. A diamond mine the size of Transylvania should be yours. Windsor Castle. Paint of blue. A Brooklyn Bridge. A private zoo. Baths in milk. Shirts of silk. Nothing's good enough for you. You deserve a great gal. I think you're a great gal. I mean a really great gal. I mean a really great gal. Well, I'll try. I'll try to be that Shake gal. Shake on a pal. You're gonna be that gal. Do you like good cooking? I would like your cooking. 
but I can only make cake. I like potatoes and steak. Well, I'll try, but they may taste like cake. You bake a cake, and I'll pretend it's steak. This is the one song I remember from this show, mm. from initially listening to it, because I like it. But I like it less now because I don't think I like Tom. But <laughs> <laughs> I still like the song. <laughs> yeah, I think this song is definitely a highlight of the show. I don't know why the lyric that stands out for me. This one is, um, you bake a cake and I'll pretend it's steak. <laughs> <laughs> Tom goes to get George so they can catch the strangler. Essie hears someone whistling in the distance. She calls to ask who is there, and George responds that it's only him. He then <laughs> walks into the light, and she sees that he has disguised himself as Sir Charles. What? George confesses that he has killed Ruth. <gasps> no, not my George! And soon kill Sir Charles. <laughs> Wait, what? He, he's going to kill Sir Charles also. But he's dressed as He Sir is dressed Charles? as Sir Charles. He planned to frame Sir Charles as the murderer. It went awry before, but tonight, when he strangles Essie, there will be plenty of witnesses. George, why? <laughs> George wraps a scarf around Essie's neck. Fortunately, she hears the real Sir Charles's voice calling to her as he arrives early. This upsets George, and he turns towards the voice. Essie escapes from his grasp. Sir Charles enters and sees his own face on the waxwork, then faces George, who confronts him in disguise. Sir Charles is terribly confused by all this. So am I. <laughs> and goes off to chase George. Who's dressed like him. <laughs> yes. Hearing Essie stamping her foot, Tom enters and eventually captures George. Essie and Tom are reunited forever. Which leads to the final song, The Chase and Finale. finale portion is just another look who's in love which i guess kind of explains why they took out the reprise of look who's in love in the second side yeah but that means that if you actually see the show you hear it three times yes it's unnecessary <laughs> and also a strange song to reprise for a finale with the entire chorus singing? Why? No, they're saying like, oh, they're in love now. Oh yeah, you're right. They're they're together forever. Okay, so let's get into the history of the show. Albert Haig wrote the music. He was born on October 13th, 1920 in Berlin as Albert Marcuse. He was of Jewish heritage, but was raised as a Lutheran because being a Jew was too dangerous in the political climate, especially in Germany. 
This was a lifesaver for him because when he was required to join the Hitler Youth in 1937, he and his mother fled to Rome and were able to do so because his passport said he was Lutheran. He attended the Royal Conservatory of St. Cecilia, who's the patron saint of music, <laughs> for two years, but the Germans found him and ordered him to report to the army. Albert's mom called her sister, who lived in Ohio, who miraculously got him a musical scholarship at the University of Cincinnati, and he moved to the U.S. in 1939. Since he did not have legal immigration status, he needed to be adopted, and he was by an eye surgeon associated with the university named Elliot Haig. Upon graduation, he joined the U.S. Army and played in the Special Services Band and started to safely and proudly identify as Jewish. After the war, he moved to New York City and wrote the music to the musicals Plain and Fancy, which we will definitely cover later, Cafe Crown, and The Fig Leaves Are Falling. He was also an actor on the TV series and movie Fame as Benjamin Shirovsky, the music teacher. He also had a small role in Space Jam as the psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) He's best known for writing the music to the TV special, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So he was the one who wrote, You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. That's so cool. And he also wrote, Da-boo-do-re, da-boo-do-re, welcome Christmas, Christmas. But... Don't worry, because he didn't write those lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Dr. Seuss did. I know, but Dabu Dory are not the most creative, <laughs> let's just say. Albert Haig died on November 12th, 2001 in Marina del Rey, California. So next we are going to talk about Dorothy Fields, who wrote the lyrics for Redhead. She also wrote the book, but she was one of four other writers who wrote the book. But we're going to focus on her a little bit more than the rest, since she did write the lyrics. (laughs) She was born on July 15th, 1904, in Allenhurst, New Jersey. She was born into show business. Her father, Lou Fields, was part of a popular vaudeville act and eventually became a theater producer, producing 40 Broadway shows. Her brother Joseph was also a writer on Broadway, writing the book To Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Wonderful Town, and Flower Drum Song, which was in direct competition with Redhead, lest we forget. Her brother Herbert collaborated with her on many shows, and we will get to him in a minute. Despite Broadway being in her blood, Dorothy's father did not want her to be in show business and refused to let her take jobs as an actress, even after she booked them. She became a teacher while secretly submitting her work to magazines. In 1926, she met songwriter Jimmy McHugh. Because of this relationship, she provided lyrics to his music in her first Broadway show, The Blackbirds of 1928, making her one of the first female lyricists on Broadway. She wrote the lyrics to the popular songs The Way You Look Tonight, music by Jerome Kern, On the Sunny Side of the Street, and I'm in the Mood for Love, both music by Jimmy McHugh. These songs and many more were featured in films and stage musicals, and eventually she took an even more active role co-writing the books for the musicals as well. In 1946, she approached Oscar Hammerstein with an idea that would become one of her most well-known hits, Annie Get Your Gun, and he agreed to produce it. 
She was supposed to write this with Jerome Kern, but he died before they started, and he was replaced by Irving Berlin, who ended up writing the music and lyrics while Dorothy would co-write the book with her brother, Herbert. I don't think that Irving Berlin wanted to uh, write with her, which I think is really mean. (laughs) It was her idea. What the hell? She was also well known for writing the lyrics to Seesaw and Sweet Charity with songwriter Cy Coleman. Throughout her 48-year career, she wrote and co-wrote 400 songs, 15 musicals, and 26 movies. She was close friends with Herbert Sondheim and was 25 when our own Stephen Sondheim was born, so she was lovingly called Aunt Dorothy by him growing up. Her lyrics are ingrained into our hearts as well as into our country's history. In his inauguration speech, Obama took inspiration from the song Pick Yourself Up from Swing Time, which Dorothy Fields wrote the lyrics to. He paraphrased her lyrics a little bit and said, Starting today, we must pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and begin again the work of remaking America. Unfortunately, she didn't get to hear those famous words because she died March 28, 1974, in New York City. But hopefully her children, Eliza and David Lamb, were bursting with pride. So as we mentioned earlier, she's not the only book writer. We're going to go ahead and talk about the other three. The first one we'll talk about is Herbert Fields. He was born on July 26th, 1897 in New York City. As we said before, he was one of the older brothers of Dorothy Fields. He went to Columbia University and was in the College Dramatic Society along with Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart. The three would eventually write a review called The Garrick Gaieties that came to Broadway in 1925. He worked with his sister on the books of Annie Get Your Gun, Something for the Boys, Up in Central Park, and Arms and the Girl. He was one of several uncredited book writers for The Wizard of Oz. He died on March 24th, 1958 in New York City, nearly a year before Redhead opened. Which some sources say was the reason that Sidney Sheldon was brought on. Sidney Sheldon was born February 11th, 1917 in Chicago, Illinois. He was a writer for Broadway plays and a co-writer on books for musicals. His solo works include Alice in Arms, Roman Candle, and he also wrote the screenplay for the movie version of Annie Get Your Gun. He had a very successful TV writing career and wrote The Patty Duke Show, I Dream of Jeannie, and Heart to Heart. He eventually wrote romantic suspense novels and is one of the best-selling fiction writers of all time. He died January 20th, 2007 in Rancho Mirage, California. The final writer we'll talk about is David Shaw. He was born on August 27th, 1916 in Brooklyn. He wrote the book to Tovarich, which we will cover in another episode. When Gwen Verdon was asked to join the show in 1956, she came with a confusing mess of contracts and obligations, which we spent a while trying to figure out, and this is what we understood from a few different sources. I think this is correct. (sighs) Very confusing. She had a pre-existing contract with producers Carr and Fryer, stating that she would star in a musical being written by David Shaw. A solution was found when the producers were added to the roster of this show, Redhead, and Shaw 
was added on to the now quite large book writing team. David Shaw died on July 27, 2007 in Beverly Hills, California. And now a little bit into the history of this actual production. Gwen Verdon wasn't originally cast in the heads of Herbert and Dorothy Fields. In 1950, when they started writing Redhead, originally titled The Works, they wrote it as a star vehicle for Beatrice Lilly. And if you want to know more about Beatrice Lilly... And you should. (laughs) She is heavily featured in episode 5, and her birthday post on our Instagram has a lot of fun videos. And a little bio that I wrote, because I'm now obsessed with her. You should definitely check it out. (laughs) It was speculated that... Sidney Sheldon was brought on to co-write the book for Redhead when it started to be rewritten for Gwen Verdon because Gwen Verdon and Beatrice Lilly are completely different types. The show was a success even before it opened, making over $1 million in advanced ticket sales, which is equivalent to $8.81 million today. The show was highly anticipated. And the reviews mostly reflect that, with Walter Kerr saying it was a, quote, skittering firecracker of a musical, and Brooks Atkinson chiming in, quote, Gwen Verdon is wonderful, and, quote, Mr. Kiley is an excellent leading man. But even with those raves, it wasn't without its flaws. This is from a New York Times article, quote, Everything works for Miss Verdon, whose humors and radiance are unique and priceless. But the rest of Redhead provokes the awful thought that musical comedy is a lost art. Perhaps in the future, all musical comedy should be written by choreographers. (laughs) What a diss! (laughs) Also from the same article. Now this is just mean. (laughs) The book was, quote... As complicated as an income tax return and just about as entertaining. (laughs) I agree. I don't. It is complicated. But it is entertaining. One sassy lady from Levittown, Pennsylvania wrote to the drama mailbag to add, quote, The play's the thing. And Redhead is an obvious, silly little story. The music is uninspiring, and we were bored to tears. (laughs) After it closed, it immediately went on tour with the Broadway cast from March to June 1960, with the wedding of Fosse and Verdon occurring on April 3rd when the show was in Chicago, Bob Fosse's hometown. So, contrary to what... We have led you to believe (laughs) there are more people in this show than just Gwen Verdon. Richard Kiley played Tom Baxter with the wonderful voice. His previous Broadway credits before Redhead include Kismet, Misalliance, and Time Limit. But it was Redhead that won him his first Tony Award. While he was nominated for two other Tonys in his lifetime, he won his second Tony for starring as Don Quixote slash Cervantes in the original Broadway cast of Man of La Mancha in 1965. He would play the same role in two more revivals, 1972 and 1977. He also starred in I Had a Ball and No Strings, which we will cover in future episodes. He also won two Golden Globes and three Primetime Emmys for the miniseries The Thorn Birds 
and the TV series A Year in the Life and Picket Fences. The other person to note in the cast is Leonard Stone, who played George Poppet. I love him. <laughs> you won a Tony Award for his performance in Redhead. You might know him as Mr. Beauregard from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the movie, with Gene Wilder. So he's the one that goes, Violet, you're turning Violet! (laughs) (laughs) He is a character actor who shows up in over 100 episodes of TV shows. insane. (laughs) You could say he was one of the original that guy actors. You know, like, oh, that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he was in... Four episodes of Perry Mason, two episodes of Gormu Pyle, five episodes of Barney Miller, three episodes of Mission Impossible, three episodes of Ironside, five episodes of Gunsmoke, four episodes of Mannix, and five episodes of Dragnet, all as completely different characters. The man worked. (laughs) All right, time for audition cuts. Yay. Which usually I'm very excited about, but this (laughs) time I'm a little grumpy because I couldn't find one. Because all of her solo songs are five seconds long. (laughs) (sighs) So I've already basically played them all for you. So if I were to pick, uh, I would pick the right finger of my left hand. Basically the entire song because there's nowhere to cut it. (laughs) You can rewind and listen to it if you'd like. It was... Two songs after the overture. I like the story of that song. I think it's good for an audition. It could be used, especially because it has to do with wedding stuff. I think it would be funny to use it for Adelaide in Guys and Dolls. I also think just because of where it sits in the voice, Cinderella, it sounds a little bit like in my own little corner. And also, obviously, because of the Cockney accent... It could be used for Eliza Doolittle. Well, I think that's a solid choice. Why, thank you. I will admit that I had a little more options than you. Just a smidgen. A lot of his songs are really good. If you're a dude, Mm -hmm. go through these songs. They're wonderful. And we are uh, specifically speaking of Tom's songs, the deep, rich baritone. I chose... My girl is just enough woman for me. She's so feminine, she clings so well. She wears all those silly, frilly things so well. Her posterior, superior. My girl is just enough woman for me. I really couldn't go her the first time we two met. Oh, my God, she was odd. But now I've come to know her and felt her magic touch. She's enough. She's too much. So before you do this song, I would definitely um, read the room, because some of the lyrics could be questionable unless you play them with enough comedy, which I think is intended. The roles that this song is um, good to audition for are those suave leading man roles in musical theater pasts. So Gaylord Ravenal in Showboat and Sky Masterson in Guys and Dolls and Herbie and Gypsy, stuff like that. There are roles still written today that I think you could use this song for. 
Oh, yeah. For Shakespeare in Something Rotten. Oh, you're right. It would work completely well. I love it. Thanks for putting that in my head. You're welcome. We have come to the question of the day. (laughs) Should this musical still be produced? One, two, three. Yes. yes, but in a oh, certain my way. Goodness. I'm so surprised that you said yes. I have my stipulations <laughs> in order for it to be successful. I would like to hear these stipulations. It has to be done with a air of self-awareness mm-hmm. so that everyone knows that Essie is a little daffy and that Tom is a big old sexist asshole. <laughs> It can't take itself very seriously at all or else it's going to fall flat on its face. If you just play up the comedy a lot, that will cover up a lot of potentially non-okay ideas. And it will make it okay to laugh at those ridiculous lines. (laughs) In general, when I hear these songs, I feel pretty happy. And sometimes that's all I want. Sometimes I like an overly complicated story. And... This story seems different than any musical I've ever seen or heard before. It's really weird. Weird? (laughs) Okay, I don't know about that. But if you want to produce this show, you have to contact MTI. And their calculator on their website is a little strange, but we have a number for you for our 100-seat house with tickets at $25 (laughs) with 16 performances the range that they gave us was $6,500 to $8,800. That seems about right. I think it's a bit expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being harsh because I'm a harsh person. And that's why we get along. Because I'm a Slytherin <laughs> and you're a Hufflepuff. And the world can't be all shiny and happy all the time. There have to be some clunkers. Not that this is a clunker. I'm just saying that this is not... My favorite show of the shows we've covered so far, and that's fine. I like it. I thought it was okay. (laughs) So we're going to leave it there. (laughs) That's all for today. Thank you so, so much for listening. Yes, thank you so, so much. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. They really do help. I think, I don't exactly know how the algorithm works, but apparently they help. But only if it's nice. Yeah, if it's bad, apparently that does something really terrible to the (laughs) algorithm that I also don't understand. So if you have a problem, just email us. Yes, email us at buriedbroadway at gmail.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at Buried Broadway or search for our Facebook page because I put up a bunch of little bonus thingies like photos and Al Hirschfield sketches and playbills and random stuff so it's a fun time over there and i get to talk to you if you want to talk to me you should definitely check them out if you haven't but if you have we really appreciate all the support so far yes thank you so so much and please help spread the word tell your friends tell your dog i don't know (laughs) put headphones on him it'll be a good time (laughs) (laughs) what What will will we dig dig up next next? bye (laughs) toodles I know we just played you some songs from the show. But that does.
doesn't mean we have the rights, you know. We're educating you and ourselves, you see. With musicals lost in history. So please don't call your lawyers. That would kill the vibe. We just want to make podcasts. And keep buried Broadway alive. What you need is a man. I never thought of that.